turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As you're turning there, uh, we dedicate part of our Sunday mornings to opening up the Bible and listening to the Word of God. We want to gather around the presence and the words of God, and we find His words in His written Word. And we do that by just going through large chunks of it at a time, Uh, sometimes whole books, sometimes whole chapters. In this case, we've been going through 1 Corinthians chapter 13, looking at the topic of love. We've been looking at it almost phrase and even word at a time, just trying to slow down, be with Jesus, and hear what he would have to teach us about the subject of love. And we're at the very end of verse 5. Uh, We'll teach on verse five today, but let's just start at verse one, read all the way through. Um, I'll start by praying, and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, we come before you and your word right now, and we ask that you would speak. Just as you moved upon people as they penned these letters and these historical documents, uh, you moved upon them by your Holy Spirit. We believe today that your word, thousands of years later, is timeless and powerful, authoritative, infallible, able to pierce through the the dividing wall of our thoughts and our intentions. It's able to go down deep. It's able to uh, mess with us. It is like a mirror uh, reflecting uh, the brokenness in our lives, but also the hope of redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. And so we pray the same prayer that Jesus, you prayed to the Father that you would sanctify us today in your truth and your word is truth. So may your word affect us in the areas that only you know need to be touched today. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse one through five. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Stop right there. This is God's holy word. I want you to imagine for a moment what it would be like if you were impervious to things that people did to you. Imagine for a moment that people's threats and their slights and their disappointments and their ability to let you down and their offenses and their jabs simply could not affect you. Not that you could control whether they do all of those things, but when they do all of those things, which they inevitably will because they're people, it simply rolls off your back without any effect. How would you feel if you had that ability? How would you feel if you had the power of not being threatened by other people's slights and spites? What would it be like to be able to go through life living as God made you without being so deeply affected by the the silly ways that people act and treat and behave towards us? I, I think this is illustrated really vividly in a story behind one of Santa Barbara's street names. 
in 1850s, uh, in the 1850s, there was a council that put together a committee that was commissioned to name all of the street names in Santa Barbara, and they were commissioned to name them after historical figures, in a sense, to capture our deep, rich, and varied heritage. And so you had names, that, uh, street names that were patterned after some of the founders and prominent citizens in, in the city of Santa Barbara. Uh, street names like Ortega and De La Guerra and Carrillo and Gutierrez and Coda. And there were some that were named after uh, Chumash chiefs like Anapamu and Yananali. There were some that were named after four Mexican governors, uh, Figueroa, Victoria, and Sola, and Mitchell Terena. There was one named after an American governor by the name of Richard Mason. And so in doing so, they were trying to capture a little bit of the story in Santa Barbara and some of its rich history. I love driving through Santa Barbara with Waze or Google Maps on with the audio on, listening to it tell me where to go. You know, take a ride on Carrillo and head down Aralaga. As you head towards Yananalai. <laughs> a lot of the names in Santa Barbara have a rich and varied history, but none of them are perhaps as interesting as one in particular, Canon Perdido. In 1847, a, a battleship by the name of the Elizabeth ran aground and was destroyed. And that, uh, in the fall of that year, its cannon was somehow left on the beach as a result of that wreckage. Months later, in the month of May of the following year, that cannon, giant cannon, mysteriously disappeared. Uh, Some of the people fighting in current battles in Santa Barbara complained uh, to the governor at that time, Richard Mason, who then called to his superiors over in Monterey, who then levied a fine, not knowing who took the cannon, just levied a fine of $500, pretty steep back then, on all the citizens of Santa Barbara for losing this cannon that was on the beach. Citizens of Santa Barbara thought that that was a ridiculous fine. Uh, but instead of fighting back, instead of causing a war, instead of taking it to the government, Uh, they did something that has since marked the citizens of Santa Barbara for years after. Uh, They threw a party, and actually a parade. They waited until the 4th of July before they paid the full amount, $500, and they did it in Santa Barbara style, throwing a parade and having a party and laughing about the whole thing. Years later, uh, in the original seal of Santa Barbara, we don't have it anymore, but in the original seal of Santa Barbara is imprinted a cannon. And over the cannon are imprinted the words, Vale 500P, which if you want to go through all the complexities of Latin and other uh, languages, uh, turns out to mean essentially, goodbye 500 bucks. <laughs> later, a street was named Cannon Perdido in honor of the dignity and humor of Santa Barbarans who have maintained that ever since. Uh, In a sense, saying, you know what? I'll lose the $500 and I'm gonna party instead, instead of holding on to this offense and slight. I love that. You see that popping up in our town all the time, but the truth is, how many of us would have actually gotten so lit up by a situation like that? Wasn't my cannon. I didn't touch the cannon. I don't even live by the beach. I live in an apartment. Can't afford the beach. I live over there. You're blaming me for the cannon. 500 bucks? Not my fault. 
How many of us would get so emotionally reactive over much smaller situations than that? Getting cut off on the highway, waiting in long lines, our kids acting up in a way that uh, embarrasses us before other parents when we want to look like really great parents, you know? Uh, an interaction with a brash coworker or an employer who doesn't respect us. An, uh, uh, someone under us at a job who is acting unsubordinately. Feeling hurt by someone that we think is supposed to love us. Feeling denied, opposed, humiliated, embarrassed, and the list goes on from small to very great. At the bottom of all of these experiences, almost all of these experiences, is really just conflict. When two people get together and they do not agree on something and hurt ensues, how many of us react when things like that happen? At the basis of it is simply just conflict. Conflict is kind of like that external stimulus that we can't control, that reveals how we as individual people handle stress and undesirable situations when they come our way. Conflict has an incredible, unsurpassed way of exposing how we react to things that we were not expecting or desiring. And there's at least a couple ways, a couple common ways, on one or either end of the spectrum that you might resonate with when you experience conflict. One, uh, the two are either to be reactive or to be resentful. Talk about the first one, to be reactive. To be reactive means that you uh, might have a short temper. You just get set off pretty easily. It might mean you have a really short wick, uh, to put it that way. It might mean that you're explosive. All it takes is just a little trigger and you just go off. Oh, it might not even mean those things. You might not be, you might not uh, couch yourself as an explosive, short-tempered person, uh, but you might be touchy, easily put off. Uh, you might not lash out at people, but when someone rubs you the wrong way, you instantly react, even if it's just inside. This is what the scriptures uh, in our, in verse, at the end of verse five is referring to when it says irritable. You are emotionally irritable. Things set you off very easily. Whether it's big or small, the reaction for you is always big. Now, it's interesting to me that when Paul pens this letter, he doesn't say that love should not get irritable. That under the correct circumstances and in the correct context, love should never find itself to be irritable. He says love is simply not irritable. That is its nature. I love this. Because the characteristic of love is to be free and liberated. It simply does not get dragged down by the things that you and I commonly get dragged down by. Love is of such a quality that it is not threatened by the slights of others. It is liberated from them. It is independent of them. It is well differentiated, to put it in another term. Love is free. And so in, when God invites you into his love, he's not inviting you into a series of obligations that you can't keep for yourself. Stop doing this, you silly person. You, so irritable, stop it. You stop it. You know, strike one. You're on a roll right now. 
When God is inviting you into his love, he is inviting you to be free from the need to hang on to things that you feel in the moment that you need to hang on to. Far from wielding over you a list of impossible commands, he's inviting you into a place of freedom when he invites you into a place of love. How do you respond to such an invitation? The first way, and I want to give you two ways that we see in Scripture. The first is simply by reflecting on the reason you got irritated in the first place and by doing this as quickly as you can. When I first started doing this, as quickly as I could meant a week because I was so lacking in self-awareness, I didn't even know what was going on until I burned all my relational bridges, steamrolled people, snapped at people, uh, and then it just caught up to me. And it would take a week before before I started to reflect. Over time, it got a little faster. But as, as fast as you can, wherever you are, to reflect on the source of your irritation. I love, this is all over the scriptures. We talked about this in our series called Messy Church. I'll give you one example in Psalm 4, verse 4. When, when King David, the psalmist, is being attacked uh, and slandered and usurped uh, by people that he thinks should have his back, He almost preaches to himself in Psalm 4, verse 4. He says, be angry and do not sin. I love that. Because how many of us, even well-intentioned Christians, have grown up our entire lives thinking that emotions, especially unpleasant emotions like anger, are unspiritual uh, and they make God upset and we should not have them. And yet we find that we are increasingly human and we get them. And so when we get them, we try to hide them or suppress them or push them down. And to be happy, like the victorious Christian. You're like, ah. And yet here David says, be angry. Be angry. Embrace the full range of human emotion in the moment. That's how God made you. Not just to feel happiness and celebration and humor, but also to feel anger and sadness, and grief. Far from what many of us have been taught our entire lives, we need to hide it, pretend we don't have it, or to push it down, don't let anyone see it. David, a man after God's own heart, says, be angry, just do it in a way that you do not sin. I love that there's a way for human beings to feel the full range of human emotion, even the unpleasant emotions, without sinning, in in such a way that honors God. Um, he goes on to explain how we can be angry without sinning. And anger shows up in a variety of ways. Some more subtle forms of anger are frustration. Another is irritation. So we could read into this what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13. Be irritated and do not sin. Well, how do we, how do we, how do we embrace what we're feeling in the moment without sinning, especially when it's something like anger, frustration, or or irritation. Well, he goes on in the next line to tell us, this is beautiful. He says, ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Selah. If I could paraphrase what he's saying, he's saying, in a time of solitude and silence, away from that, that, uh, that environment that is just flooding you with emotion, 
Find some time to yourself, get in the presence of God, and ponder, meditate, reflect on your own heart. Why am I feeling the way that I feel right now? Don't run from it. Don't try to hide it from God who already knows that it's there. Don't try to hide it from yourself. You're just kidding yourself. Face it. Bring it before God and ask yourself the question, why do I feel this way? Have you ever snapped at somebody that you really actually love with all of your heart and find yourself asking in the aftermath, why did I do that? Have you ever asked yourself uh, or found yourself reacting in a moment and then like realizing that it wasn't such a big deal after all? Ever get in an argument with somebody that you love and you're like, what were we arguing about in the first place? And none of you can remember? Well, maybe your spouse always remembers, I don't know. But maybe you forget, you're like, wow, this is silly, this got blown out of proportion. Sometimes at the root of those seemingly insignificant things that set us off are deep things, layers underneath our heart that are just waiting to be set off. And God invites us to peel back those layers before him and ask, what is really the problem behind why I am so irritated, frustrated, and angry? In doing so, you are not just inviting God into the surface of your spirituality, you're opening up the vulnerable parts, the dirty parts, the messy stuff that you don't want anybody else in the church to know. God wants in there, man. God wants in there, and if you were to open up some of those scary places to him, the presence of God would rush in like a storm. You would experience him on a level you might not have ever experienced in your life. You would experience the healing of God in the areas of your life where it really mattered. Some of you might be saying, There's, this is insane that you're speaking about just being irritated, like little things that set us off when there's so much happening in the world right now. Racism on the other side of the country, here in California, everything is blowing up. There's missiles flying into the ocean over there. Like, all of this stuff is happening. You're spending, like, all Sunday talking about irritability? Aren't there bigger things to talk about? Is this really that important? Yes. Because if we don't speak about things like irritation that seem to be pretty important to God... What Paul seems to be alluding to here in 1 Corinthians 13 is that irritation, like frustration and anger, left unattended and unpondered, will eventually grow into resentment. And resentment and bitterness and rage are the source of so much of what you see on headlines God cares about those things as we spoke about last week, right? He cares about the structures. He cares about the surface. He cares about the societal norms that cause those things. He also cares about the heart that leads us to that place to begin with. And irritation can easily grow into bigger things like resentment. Love is not irritable or resentful. Resentment, if, uh, to put it this way, if being irritable or emotionally reactive is like a microwave, just instantly reacts to a certain something and just burns right on the spot, resentment might be more comparable to a Dutch oven or to a slow cooker. It marinates slowly over time. 
until what is in there is just straight cooked. And this is what resentment is. It's that thing that you refuse to ponder and to face. You realize years down the road, months down the road, it never left you. It's been sitting in the slow cooker of your heart, marinating in anger until it turns into resentment. That's why while the Bible allows believers to feel anger, even recommending that we ponder it in the moment, it simultaneously urges us to move on from that place of anger as soon as we can. We get a lot of passages that tell us to feel anger, to respond to anger rightly in the moment, but we never get any passages that I'm aware of that tell us to just harbor it for the rest of our lives. In fact, we are told, hey, deal with it as soon as you can, but do not stay there, for it can easily become poisonous. I think of passages like James chapter 1, verse 19, where he says, know this, my beloved brothers, uh, brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. I love how he couches two things uh, that we're supposed to be slow at, anger and speaking. Those things go together real well, don't they? And the one thing that we're, the one thing James tells us to do as quickly as possible without thinking is listening. In other words, you can never go wrong with just listening to people. But be careful if you're going to open your mouth and be careful if you have anger. You want to you be slow to get to that place. That speaks of irritability. Or I think of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Be angry, Paul says, just like the psalmist, and do not sin. I think he's echoing David right there. But look at what he adds at the end. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't stay there too long. Deal with it. Be healed. Express it in a healing way before God and with others, but don't stay there. And so you notice in these two passages what we see in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5. We have irritability. Don't, don't be too quick to get angry. Don't be easily riled up. But then we also see in Ephesians 4, resentment. Once you're there, get out of there as quick as you're able to. Because love is not irritable or resentful. And left unattended, it can destroy a person's soul, their relationships, and everything around them. In fact, some of you might be doing this right now. In fact, you might have heard me on the first way that we handle conflict, which was being emotionally reactive or irritable, easily irritable, you might have said to yourself, oh, I don't do that at all. I practice so much restraint. I close my mouth. I don't tell people what they actually should hear. I hold on to it, and I just bite my lip, and I take it. You might be doing that and thinking, oh, I'm good. I must be super loving because I don't do that. I'm withholding my honesty, and perhaps you feel that your restraint is a sign of maturity, but maybe for you, not everybody, but maybe for you, it's really nothing more than you trying to maintain a false peace because you're afraid of conflict and maybe don't even know how to handle it rightly. And what that's doing to you, it, looks, it might seem like restraint to you. I'm not telling that person what I should say. And replaying over and over in our minds. Anybody do that? Or is it just me? Replaying in our minds uh, what we should have said, what we're going to say later, what we're going to do when we see that person. But on the external side, we're just, you know, we're the proper dignified person. We're not giving them what they actually deserve. That might be resentment. 
You might be withholding something externally, but allowing it to cook internally. And you are cultivating a false peace and a resentment that might turn into something called the root of bitterness. And perhaps that came from you or me being afraid of conflict, thinking that anytime there's a conflict, it must be a bad thing. But conflict in itself is not a bad thing. Uh, Jesus was in a lot of conflicts. Some of them he initiated himself. It's not the conflict, which is going to happen when you're around broken, sinful people, such as ourselves. It's how you handle yourself in such a conflict. A conflict simply brings out of us what is already in us to begin with. It is like that finger that is just prodding you and bringing out of you what is already in there. Uh, I love what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, verse 11. He said, it's not what, you, what goes into your mouth that defiles a person. It's not food or drink in that case that goes into a person that defiles a person. It's what comes out of the person, out of their heart, that actually defiles a person. It's what's already in there. He would go on to say in verse 18 uh, that uh, what's in there, speaking of the words, comes from a deep place. He would say, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. It's not the food you eat, it's not the externals, it's actually the things coming out your, your, your heart as revealed sometimes by your words in things like conflict. It reveals what is already there. That's why the Proverbs would tell us in chapter four, verse 23, guard your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the wellsprings of life. In other words, the heart is what animates the rest of you. Your behaviors, your actions, your habits, they all come from the heart. The Bible is so concerned about what's in your heart, how you're cultivating your heart. Yes, the outward behaviors and habits are important, but so is the heart. That's where all of that stuff comes from. And so it would behoove us today to take seriously the psalmist and Paul and to slow down and ask ourselves, what What are we irritated about? My wife and I, Brianna, sometimes ask ourselves a few questions at dinner uh, as an exor- a spiritual exercise together. We'll ask, what are you anxious about? What are you uh, surprised about? What are you angry about? And what are you glad about? And we'll go through those things. No judgment, uh, no trying to fix or solve each other's problems, just listening. And for one person, it's an exercise in listening. For the other person, it's an exercise in pondering in our own hearts, on our beds, and being silent. And as I said earlier, a part of anger could be irritation. So I want to ask this to you and give us like 30 seconds to just do this before God as an act of worship. What are you irritated about today? Just think through that for half a minute. Whatever that is, or whatever it was, maybe it was something today or last week or a place that you're at or feeling right now, could be irritation, frustration, or full-blown anger and rage. 
I want you to, I want you to look at it. Instead of running away, I want you to face it and look at it. Now, the first thing that probably a lot of us want to do, especially us Christians that have been around the block for a while, the first thing we might want to do is to tell ourselves, stop it. Yeah. Okay, I've seen my irritation. I've seen my source of anger. Stop being angry. Just don't. It's that attitude of wanting to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and to do the thing that we know we're supposed to do. I want you to notice that Paul does not say that here. He does not say, Chris Lazo is not irritable. Because he would be so wrong. Nor does he say, you are not irritable. Stop being irritable now. What does he say? Love is not irritable. Love is not irritable. It is free from some of those entrapments. So our second way forward is not just to ponder in our hearts on our bed to face what is inside of us, but it is after facing what is inside of us, as dirty as it might be, to now open and allow God's love, which is not irritable, to flood into those places that we have been facing. To allow God's love to cover and fill some of the places where we are the most vulnerable as we're pondering in our hearts in silence and solitude. It's this love that Paul refers to uh, in the original language as agape love. It's that divine love. It's different than love that friends feel or biological families feel. It's different than love uh, that uh, uh, friends might feel towards one another. It is divine love. It is a love that God gives people that do not deserve it. Uh, It shows up in the Old Testament under the Hebrew word chesed, which is uh, similar to agape. It refers to a covenant love. It, It has this encapsulating idea of commitment in that God is committed to you uh, despite your failures towards him. This is the love that Paul is describing here as that which is never irritable. And this is what we need to fill our hearts on a daily basis. Paul Miller, uh, author and writer, calls this a stubborn love. He calls God's kind of love a stubborn love because it's based on commitment, not feeling. He says this in one of his books. He says, love like this, this agape, this chesed, eliminates even little things like moodiness, the touchiness that is increasingly common in people today. Moodiness often begins with accumulated slights or the day just not working. Our inner spirits momentarily give up on life and we stop caring how we affect people around us. Self is set on a hair trigger. But if we do chesed, agape, love, this is no longer the case. Now it doesn't mean that we don't have moments and days when we have that cranky feeling or we share share how fragile our spirit is. It's just that we refuse to let it affect us. I would argue even further that we have been enabled to refuse to let it affect us. Now this type of thing is not something that you typically go to a church gathering on Sunday, listen to a sermon, and then wake up on Monday morning completely realizing that. Like you're just not gonna wake up tomorrow if you are an emotionally reactive, resentful, bitter person 
You're probably not going to wake up tomorrow just like, oh my goodness, I am the most loving person. This is incredible. Great sermon. (laughs) This is not an overnight phenomenon. Rather, it's uh, in the words of one great author, a long obedience in the same direction. It's little steps over and over and over and over. Uh, it can be seen in a story it once shared here uh, of the famous captain of the plane that went down, Captain Sullenbarger, or Sully as the movie would refer to him, uh, who found himself in a situation that you just don't learn about in your aviation classes, uh, which involved a flock of Canada geese flying into all of his jet engines as, he, as soon as he took off. Engines went down, and he had to land the plane in a crash landing. Flying over New York, there's not a lot of options for you to land a giant plane like that, uh, being one of the most condensed cities in the country. So his only option was to land on the Hudson River. Don't know if any of you have any experience landing planes, but that is very, very very difficult, so I'm told by people who land planes. So many variables on top of a job that already requires thousands of other variables. He had to think of something in the moment of time. He had to think of a thousand extra things and be dead on right, or the hundreds of people in his cabin would be dead on arrival. And to land on water going in a certain direction, coming at a certain altitude, at a certain speed, and all of these things coming together, and to be able to put all of these things together and make the right choice, having only two minutes to make that choice. And he made it. Lands a plane on the Hudson River, saves everybody's life. Now the headlines that showed up after that were incredible. What you would expect. Hero, walking in miracles, incredible. Now, I believe more than anybody about miracles, but I don't think that was a miracle. Maybe there was like a supernatural hand of God. I like to think that the hand of God is on just about everything these days, but there's also a sense in which that was a well-trained man doing what he had been practicing for years doing the same thing that he had done thousands and thousands and thousands of times when it was rote and simple and easy and boring. So when the time came and arose, when it was not boring, in the middle of a crisis, and he had to think on the spot without thinking, he did it a thousand and one times because that was simply a part of who he was. It's that ability that we have only after training a thousand times that we're able to do that thing a thousand and one times because it comes naturally to us. We no longer have to think about the right thing to do. Love can also come naturally to those who have been trained well by it. Where you don't have to wake up in the morning and try to look at your notes that you've scribbled on the back of your arm that says, love is patient, love is kind. Oh, yeah, what else? Okay, oh, yeah, it, uh, it, uh, it, it, it never ceases, it never ends. Okay, good, 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 did that today. Uh, rejoices the wrongdoing, rejoices the truth. You just don't because it's in you and it flows out of your heart. When things like love come naturally to a person, the Bible calls that character. It's just who you are naturally. 
you do that almost by accident. And yet it's not an accident, is it? You have been trained. What if you and I were trained by love? What if you and I were trained by the love of God? Now make no mistake about it, we are trained and training by other things all around us all the time. The question is, what are we being trained by? Now just like a pilot doing the right thing without thinking in an airplane uh, in a moment of crisis is no accident, it is a result of profound ongoing training, so too it is no accident when we lash out at someone in the parking lot. It is no accident when we work the system to get our own way. It's simply no accident when we uh, fly into a rage or a spite of anger at the smallest slight, when we find ourselves easily getting irritated or offended. It's no accident when we treat someone passively aggressively, uh, passive aggressively, like giving them the silent treatment because of something that they said, or when we begin to simmer in our own resentment. It may feel in the moment like that just came over us, but I assure you, like the pilot and so many other things, like what Paul says, these things are no accident. You have been trained to react that way to a conflict. What is in you is simply coming out. And the ways that we're trained are at least in three. We've talked about the first two. We are trained by our family of origin. Maybe your family was just bad at conflict, and so you're bad at conflict now. Maybe your family just always uh, avoided talking about difficult things, and so you went into you know, your 30s or 40s or 50s or 20s or whatever, uh, avoiding conflict too, and you've inherited that from them. Uh, it's not just from our family of origin, it's also our own habits that we assemble and put together that create a training regimen for us. And you might have reacted again, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, whoa. Maybe God didn't want me to say what I was about to say. Okay, I'm going to change gears a little bit. <clears throat> you might be reacting against what you were raised with. Maybe your family was bad at conflict, so you want to be really good at conflict, but you don't do it so well, and you confront people uh, not in the spirit of love. Maybe you're brash and harsh. Uh, whatever the occasion is, you develop your own learned habits, but then there's a third one. We've talked about those first two pretty extensively. There's a third one, and that is our surrounding culture. Uh, it's hard to leave a church gathering saying, I'm going to be patient and kind. I'm going to be meek. I'm going to consider the well-being of others at the expense of myself because that's what Jesus did and that's what the pastor told me to do. When day by day, hour by hour, we are confronted with the cultural values of a different kingdom. Cultural value, uh, that, a culture that values the brash and blatant assertion of power. With everything from American exceptionalism, Google it, to a me first individualism that steamrolls everybody and everything in our way to get what we believe we deserve. We swim in that. Whether we realize it or not, you're being trained by that. It is in the air that we breathe. It is all over the place. Some of you may say, uh, yeah, I can totally see that. That is that's a great step of self-awareness. You're on the right path there. But others, you might say, nah, I'm good. 
Maybe you're a believer. Maybe you're a Christian. You're like, oh, man, I'm in the world, but I'm not of it. You know, you throw around platitudes like that. You're like, and actually, I'm a culture changer. I'm changing culture left and right, you know. I'm not a part of the world. I'm in it. I'm not a part of it. I'm changing things. Culture's changing. I walk into the room, and culture changes, man. That's like how I roll. (laughs) That's incredibly naive because culture is incredibly powerful. We like to think that we are culture changers, and I'd like to think that we are too. We should also consider how deeply we are, in fact, changed by the culture around us and trained by the culture and the world around us. It's in the air we breathe. It's in the water we swim in. I think of the story that uh, David Foster Wallace told to a graduating class at Kenyon College in 2005 about two fish. Told a story about these two young fish that were swimming along, and they happened to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who, uh, as he was passing by, looked at the two younger fish, nodded at them, and said, "Uh, Morning, boys. How's the water? Swam off. The two young fish swam on for a little bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the younger, uh, other younger fish and goes, what in the world is water? <laughs> Old fish swims off. At Kenyon, Wallace elaborated on that little parable by saying, the point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious and important influences are often the ones that are hardest to see and to talk about. It's the things in our hearts that we don't even see that sometimes shape us the most. Or to put it in the words of the modern-day philosopher, Winnie the Pooh, who said, sometimes the smallest things take up the most room in our hearts. And yet it is possible if we're followers of Jesus and we read anything about the way that he lived and what he called us to, We must believe it is possible to be aware of the powerful currents around us and choose daily to swim against it, to swim upstream. But it does not happen simply by thinking ourselves into a new way of behaving. Thinking is very important, but when culture is helping us behave ourselves into new ways of thinking, we need transformation on every single level of the human personality. We need it in our minds, we need it in our hearts, we need it in our relationships. We need it on the deepest level, we need it on the surface level. And we need it more than just coming to church every uh, month when we feel like we're ready for it. We need it more than just praying whenever a crisis hits. We need it more than just getting into the words sometimes in December and in April when big holidays arise. We need to be steeped in the way of Jesus and the people of Jesus all the time. If we are living in the water, so to speak, all the time, we need to start breathing oxygen a little more than we have been. We need bigger, better, more far-reaching training by someone who knows how to train, by someone who has beaten all the destructive forces in hell and in the world. We see that vividly in the person of Jesus Christ, who when he had reason to be irritable, not because someone cut him off on the highway, but because people were pulling out his beard, beating him with sticks flogging him, nailing him to the cross, mocking him, 
belittling him, the people he came to save. Isaiah 53 would say about him, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. In a culture that prizes me first, exceptionalism and individualism and brash power, we might look at that and say, that is so weak. But the believer, the follower of Jesus, looks at that and says, that is so unbelievably powerful. That Jesus could look at his enemies and not attack them. And yet it's not in that passive-aggressive way that I might close my mouth when I'm being attacked, when really inside I am hurling insults. They just don't hear them. Luke 23, verse 34, even the things that came out of Jesus' mouth, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This guy, when he was stabbed, nailed, flogged, beaten, pushed, abused, the only thing that came out was mercy, forgiveness, and love, because that's who he was. This guy comes to change everything, dying to enable the forgiveness of sins for people who are irritable, angry, frustrated, poisonous creatures, but he also rises from the dead to transform them so they don't have to stay that way. And if you're in Christ today, you might be beating yourself over the head over all the times today that you have lashed out at somebody or harbored something in your heart. Maybe you're doing it right now. Maybe you are unlike some of the examples we've given today uh, who are dealing with irritation and resentment in the moment. Maybe you're far beyond that. Maybe you have harbored resentment and anger for so long that you have burned bridges, you have hurt people, and you are simply looking at the wake of your own poisonous destruction. You're looking at this and maybe your heart weighs heavy on you because you realize you don't have a chance. And I'm here to remind you, the chance has been given to you and they never run out. If you are in Christ, God is not easily angry towards you. We're speaking about us Wanting to be free from irritability? God is not irritable. Exodus 34, 6, he describes himself as someone who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he does not keep a record of your wrongs if you are in Christ. Psalm 103, 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He doesn't keep a record of your wrongs against you, and he is not harboring resentment against you. God loves you. He came to save you, and he came to transform you and to bring you into an adoption into his family so that you could be set free from your own poisonous ways. Because God is love, and he loves broken, messed up, sinful people like me and you. And because he was in the world, in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, he is now entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. But he doesn't just forgive, he also doesn't want to leave you in that place. He wants to heal you. He wants to set you free. He wants to release you to live his life with him in the city of Santa Barbara and abroad to not only experience his love towards you, but to release that love to people who need to experience it from you. Which is why love is not irritable or resentful, is so important in the scheme of so many other seemingly big things going on in the world around us. It's because God wants to change systems and structures 
and he also wants to change the heart that results in them. God wants to heal your heart. And so the God whose heart is full of love comes to people whose hearts are filled with poison and he says, I want to trade. And the response is up to you. What will you do with that? For some of you, you've never known him in that way before. You might not describe yourself as a Christian. Maybe you don't even know if you are one. He wants to exchange those things with you. He asks nothing from you but to take his hand and go with him. For some of you, you've been a believer maybe for years, maybe your whole life. What does that look like for you? To continue to receive the life-changing power of the love of God in those deep, dark areas of your heart that you've been closing off. This transformation doesn't come, again, by one Sunday or by periodically looking at Scripture or by praying only when crisis hits or dropping into a church gathering once a month or by avoiding the trappings of deep spiritual community because you're afraid of them. It comes from deep training and immersion. The same Jesus would call his disciples to leave their nets to follow him, continually invites you into the same process with him. I can think of nobody better to follow in this life and to learn the power of the love of God. Will you follow Jesus? Will you follow Jesus? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we ask that as you lend your hand as that great rabbi as the master who beckons to himself apprentices who don't just want to be converted, who don't just want to learn more information, but who want their entire lives to be permeated. As you would say in the Gospel of Luke, the kingdom of God is like, a, is like yeast. It's like the yeast that a woman put into a, a loaf of bread and the yeast just permeated the entire loaf. And, I think there might be some of us in here today who just, we want to be, we want permeation. We've maybe compartmentalized you to certain areas of our lives and we've seen that that has gotten us nowhere and we want everything from you. We want to be permeated, saturated, and immersed in the way of Jesus. We, we want to believe in who you are and what you've said And we also come before you in humility, as your disciples did in saying, we believe, Lord, but help our unbelief. And give us this day a measure of faith that would cause us to be a little more risky and a little more reckless in stepping out of the boat and into the water to follow you wherever you might have us go. And Lord, would you start with some of these small things like anger and irritation, but Lord, would you not stop there? Would you take us to the bigger things? May we be changed, that our city, our families, our friends, our schools, our nation, and the nations would know that you are real because of the love they see being shared amongst his disciples. Today we ask that we would start by drinking deeply of your love for us. So may you shower it upon us today. In Jesus' name, amen.